25 years ago today, I was probably really stressed out about the college application and admissions process. Things have arguably gotten tougher since then for students trying to chart their futures. And the headlines this month don't help. The U.S. Department of Justice charged 50 people last week in a multi-million dollar scheme that allowed rich parents to cheat the college admission system by faking standardized test scores and bribing athletics officials. Those parents managed to get their kids into elite schools like Georgetown, Stanford, Yale, and USC. But what if you don't want to commit a crime but still want to succeed in life? What's the plan? We're going to discuss. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. This week, the real lesson of the admission scandal, the answer to the question of whether elite schools are worth the price anyway, and how to make your own plan. With me today, Michael Riley, executive director of the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers. C.J. Farley is author of the new book, Around Harvard Square, the father of two teenagers, which is important. Adam Brownlee is an investment theory instructor at Western Kentucky University who has done the math on whether an Ivy League degree is worth the cost. And CNBC Wealth editor Robert Frank joins us as well. Uh, welcome, everyone. Michael, I, you have an organization that's full of the very people who uh, some people are apparently trying to trick, deceive, uh, in order to get in to the system. Given this story that has shaken so many people and just left so many jaws on the floor, what's going to change? What's the takeaway from your membership? Well, I think part of the issue is, first of all, this was very disturbing and troubling because uh, we generally would think that uh, admissions is a fairly open and transparent process. but. We, ha we have a sector of higher education that's highly selective that's very different than the rest of the landscape. So uh, we, we find ourselves once again in many of the discussions around admissions talking about that particular sector, whether it's issues about uh, merit versus need aid or low-income students attending. Uh, that tends to dominate a lot of the conversation when admissions writ large across the country are generally a very open process. and. Uh, students are able to meet their admission standards. But again, we, we, I think what we're doing most is sitting down and saying, what sort of agency do we have as a profession uh, in contributing to this kind of behavior? Uh, CJ, in your book around Harvard Square, which, I mean, interestingly, you, you went to Harvard. I went to Harvard. You have three brothers who went to Harvard. Yeah, I went to Harvard or Harvard <laughs> Law School, yes. <laughs> right. Um, in this book, you have a plot line where there's a privileged character, privileged family, that fakes pictures trying to get the child into Harvard. Wow, how, how did you know? I'm saying right now that I called it, it's in my book, that hasn't even <laughs> hit stores yet, that this, this, this kind of stuff was going on in the admissions process. And the reason why I was able to weave that into my narrative is because this has been going on for a long time. This is not new. And even 100 years ago, back in 1918, a bunch of the top elite colleges all met and they decided, what can we do to keep the level of Jews down who are applying and getting into our colleges? Mm. So that's kind of oppressive stuff that was going on in the admissions process only 100 years ago. And today we're seeing other kinds of shenanigans go on that are wrong. So it's never been a fair process. Um, it's never been a, a, a good process. And it's gotten even worse today with wealth inequality, where rich families have even more power and influence to influence the decisions that are made by some of these admissions directors. Now, the popular conversation, Robert Frank, is that uh, there's the appropriate way for rich people to try to buy their way into universities by giving a whole lot of money, maybe getting a building named after them and then uh, getting a leg up. In, in the process in, in some cases. And then there's the inappropriate way, which is what we saw um, in, in the most recent days. How is this conversation playing out in circles of people with wealth who uh, maybe are finding certain things, uh, unless they're closer to the billionaire class, that they actually can't afford? Yeah, I don't know if it's acceptable because there's a poll out today from USA Today that shows that two-thirds of Americans think that the entire admissions process is rigged for the wealthy. And a majority, 80 percent, both Republicans and Democrats disagree that, that, that families should be able to give to a university millions of dollars and then have their kid go to that school. That is the legal stuff. It's not just legal. It's subsidized by taxpayers because you know, those people are able to write off those millions of dollars of gifts uh, to universities. And so there's, there's some legislation now being pr proposed in the Senate where Senator Wyden is saying, look, if you have a child either going to a university or of applying, 
if you give that university a donation, you can't write it off from your taxes. But I think the broader question for Michael and everyone is, what does FAIR look like? You know, how do you structure an admissions process that is truly meritocratic? Because if you do it just based on te purely on test scores, we've seen in New York City, for instance, how that tends to still advantage certain groups and disadvantage others. And so, you know, it's easy to say, well, let's just take money out of the equation. But then the question is, what is the basis by which you have a transparent and fair admissions process. And I don't think anyone's articulated what that looks like or well, set an example. Well, I, I want to jump in there because I think that one thing we need to look, take a look at is not just look at the college admissions process, but dive deeper into what's happening in the public schools and where the kids are getting the kind of education and the kind of test prep uh, uh, support that allows them to compete with people who have a lot of privilege and money and power. Part of the scandal here isn't just what's happened, and people shouldn't get lost in the stars and just sort of talk about Felicity Huffman and all these other stars that are, that are, that are being um, accused of doing this, because it's really about the whole system. And the system is not just about what people have done that's criminal, it's also about what they've done that's legal, the way they have access to, to tutors and to, and to, um, and to, um, and to uh, uh, prep schools and to, and to um, uh, people who are going to support them in ways that, wealth, uh, that, that help them to, to uh, do better on the test than people who don't have access to all of those, that, that kind of support. And I think that if we want to have a society where people who are smart are able to go to these schools, um, that's going to help everyone in society and not just uh, those individual families. We have to get to that place. And the way we do that is by improving public education and looking at that first. Adam Brownlee, I want to get to you in just a moment about the math behind this. But before that, Michael, weigh in from the admissions officer perspective on what really can improve in this process, both the process itself and after a shock like this, uh, improving people's faith in the process. Yeah, so I guess getting at that question of what does FAIR look like, I would say that FAIR looks like the admissions process at probably 80% of colleges and universities in the country where uh, they publish a very clear set of expectations for admissions, and most students meet those. The acceptance rates are 70 or 80%. Now, in the, t the top 50 schools, we even have some schools there, University of Illinois, that you know 70% of applicants get in, but we have a, a set where like a place like Harvard or Yale where you have more applicants who have perfect SATs or ACT scores than you have slots in your freshman class. How do you differentiate those students? And I think that's where we're having these challenges where you, people are trying to do six, seven, eight uh, different advanced placement tests, doing community service, uh, bumping up their uh, resume or in cheating. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's the challenge we have, and I don't know what the answer is. And I agree that we don't simply do it by test scores. Uh, you may as well just ask, rank your students by family income, mm. because that's the strongest correlation. So uh, this is a dilemma for highly selective institutions. Adam Brownlee, I, I, I want to get to Adam yeah. here. Uh, Adam Brownlee, that's really interesting stats, because you have this huge disparity in acceptance rates between the top 50 and the rest. And so the question is, even though, you know, we've all seen the lists and we all know the brands, wh what did you find in terms of whether it's worth it to aim for the, the Ivy League for if you're paying full price? And, and how did you calculate it? Yeah. Well, certainly when we start taking uh, the, the cost of a four-year education and we put it into a black box economic model, uh, almost something of the sort that Warren Buffett would use to value a stock, we start saying, are we getting the most value for our money? Um, and, you know, with the stock, you have a P.E. ratio, and a P.E. of 10 tells you that for every dollar in earnings, you know, you're paying $10. And all else being the same, uh, one selling at five is greater value, as in the world of Warren Buffett. Uh, so when it comes to uh, uh, education, if we look at an Ivy League versus a public education, you're paying a, a PE of about 3.3 for the Ivy League and only 1.36 for the public education. Uh, so all things uh, being the same, the public education is providing us greater value. You can even take that a step further and put it into a, a discounted cash flow model. Hmm. And we bring those uh, future earnings back to present day. We do see that a, a higher level of education is superior, coming in at about a 3.2 million. Uh, but the uh, public education is at 3 million. 
uh, in these current day dollars. But when you start bringing those costs in, uh, you see that the rate of return is quite different. And the uh, reason I, why that is so interesting to me, uh, Alan Kruger, who uh, sadly passed away uh, just days ago, and Stacy Berg back in 1999 did a study on mm -hmm. what happens to students who are accepted at Ivy League schools versus other schools and, and what their outcomes are like. And what they found was, for students who were maybe accepted at Ivy Leagues and didn't go, maybe went to a state school or, or, or another school, mm -hmm. their earnings later in life were just as high as their peers who had actually accepted uh, and gone to the Ivy League school, in suggesting that it's more about the person in a lot of cases, at least when it comes to earnings, we don't know what they learned. Correct. <laughs> but it's more about the person than it is the school. So what does that mean about this cultural mindset that we have around certain school brands and what, what we should in fact be focused on value-wise? Well, exactly. There's something qualitative going on that a, a black box economic model can't quite grasp. You know, in the case of uh, Lloyd Lofman and, and Felicity Huffman, uh, they're paying up for the brand, one would assume, uh, something behavioral going on. Even kind of taking it back to an investing world uh, with Warren Buffett's Mr. Market, at some point the behavior becomes irrational and prices go through the roof and people are paying up. Uh, and in one of the cases, I believe uh, the actress paid $500,000 to get her, her daughter onto the, the crew team at, um, uh, I believe, uh, USC. Uh, so that... Uh, you know, that even decreases her return even more that they're getting back. That would cut it in half. So economically, it stops making sense after a while, and perhaps uh, there's some sort of prestige that's going on here, or perhaps bragging rights. Maybe they are looking out for the best interests uh, of their kids at, at first, uh, but economically, it, 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 stops, uh, it stops making sense after a little while. Yeah, I, w I would just jump in and say that this was really, if you read the transcripts of this and the 200-page the uh, complaint from the federal prosecutors, it's just, it reads like an, a Netflix uh, series. It's just incredible. <laughs> But mm -hmm. what, what you see is that this is clearly not driven by the interests and desires of the kids to go to these great institutions. Yeah. Many times the kids weren't even aware of what's happening. This is all the status needs of the wealthy parents. And so when you look at what does a Ivy League degree confer on a child in terms of earnings, versus, it doesn't matter because what this is about is parents who are already extremely wealthy, their kids will be fine. Even if they went to the local <laughs> community college, these kids will be fine. And so the issue is the ability to go to a cocktail party or, or a social event and say, my kid uh, is at Georgetown or Stanford or wherever. And that is what matters to these parents. And I think what's lost in all of this is the kids. And what do the kids want? And what do they want to do with their lives? And what matters to them? And oftentimes, as you've seen with, with some of these kids who have public profiles on social media, they don't even like school. They don't care about school. They just want to be YouTube stars. Well, Chris? And, well, yeah, and, it, and in, in some cases, some of the kids knew that their that their uh, headshots were being uh, cropped onto uh, somebody doing a pole vault or somebody in the uh, rowing crew. And in some cases, the kids didn't know at all that uh, you know Rick Singer was helping to uh, doctor their ACT and SAT scores. So right. uh, that's uh, we'll see where the story leads. Um, but uh, also, I would assume too, not to take it off this uh, this uh, uh, thread of, uh, of the uh, subject that we're talking about. But if you're in a park where everybody's littering, uh, it's easier for, for you to litter. So I, I'm guessing that we're going to see uh, probably more bad actors in oh, this no story question. As, as it develops. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it, I agree that it's interesting that, that studies, some have suggested that you don't really make that much more money by going to one of these top elite institutions mm -hmm. rather than something that's sort of lower down on the food chain. But those same studies also indicate that maybe things are different for people who are um, Hispanic or black or from a, a family where perhaps the parents haven't yet gone to elite institutions themselves. Because so, of the network and the connections right. and the cultural learning, right? I also suggest a kind of a halo effect. Mm. I think a lot of black professionals who have gone to the Ivy Leagues understand when you have that degree and you walk into a room, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that's enough to confer to people that, oh, that guy actually does have some sort of credentials. Let me listen to him in a way that it might not if you went to somewhere else. It's unfair. It's not right. It's probably not even warranted, but it's a fact. And um, I think it's reflected in the numbers you look at in terms of the, the, the way people earn 
post-college when they're Hispanic or black or come from one of these lower, lower economic rungs and they have these degrees. And, and probably I, in a lot of those yeah. cases, when a student gets into a school of that caliber, they, they often go. I just want to mention this uh, viewer comment. Rebecca Mettler writes, there's nothing to say. The deck is stacked. If these schools are claiming to deliver a world-class education, that would include more diversity beyond the measure of ACT and SAT scores. Can you imagine some of these students caught up in the scandal being successful in the higher level college courses? How does that serve the other students in class? I, I, yeah, I wonder if, if some of them might have even done okay on their own merits, but their parents were, were too uh, class conscious. Robert, were you uh, were you going to jump in? No, I I think it was somebody else. But okay. I, w I would mention <laughs> on that point, there, there's been some some counselors and people who are in this huge booming industry of college admissions consultants. And and Michael made the point earlier that most schools are transparent, but you know well, the the twenty percent that aren't. The, they, there's a whole industry built up around the lack of transparency and parents just not knowing exactly what those top schools want. And, and some of those people have said recently the schools yeah. that, that where those kids got in because of help from their parents, they ended up dropping out. So it yeah. doesn't serve anybody well, in the end. It's, it's, it's a slippery slope here with admissions, and at some point a moral divide was crossed here. But uh, you think about uh, getting extra help and uh, super tutors for kids to get in, into uh, a certain college. Um, you know, you go in through the front door taking the ACTs and SATs, not having somebody else sit and take them uh, for the child. But then the slippery slope starts, and part two is, Perhaps you pay up a, an institution to get your name on a building, or perhaps you give to an alumni foundation. And now we're starting on that path. Now that's still legal, but at some point you cross that divide, and now you're on to step three, uh, where you're now paying the uh, the soccer coach at Yale to say that he's recruiting uh, your daughter so that they can get in into that school. Um, so so at some point somebody has made that conscious decision to uh, to cross over. But look, even the motives, again, back to the parents, you know, yeah. wanting to be able to brag on their kids, but also just even back in my local community, you know, people pay to send their kids to different schools legally. So maybe it doesn't start as something that's quite as nefarious, uh, but certainly it, it can lead to that. Uh, uh, just one sec. I want to reset. This is Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people. We are talking about not just the college cheating scandal, but how to get into college or even get ahead in the right way. So let's talk about strategies for doing this right. My kids are eight and 10. We're still some years off from thinking about that. CJ Farley, you've got a couple of teenagers in the house. You and your wife both went to Harvard, so, <laughs> so, the, so the bar is, uh, is kind of high. How do you manage that process and what's your thought process, knowing what you know for how you're guiding them? Well, I think, first of all, um, parents have to get away from the fear. You know, I find talking to a lot of other friends of mine who graduated from elite colleges, they say again and again, oh, I wouldn't have gotten in if I had applied today. And so then they see these low numbers. At Harvard, the admissions rate is around 5% or lower. And they say, well, geez, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a crapshoot getting my kid in. Maybe I need to do something extra. And I think these folks involved in the scandal are like, well, maybe I need to do something criminal in order to get my kids in because the admissions rates are so low. People need to remove themselves from that fear because even if they don't get into Harvard, even if they don't get into one of these top Ivy League schools, there are a lot of great schools out there that their kids are going to have a great time in. They're going to meet great professors, have great friends, have great social relationships, network like crazy, and be able to have terrific yeah. lives. You turn on the NCAA tournament this week, You'll see a lot of people cheering for the school just as hard. Schools you haven't heard of, schools you have heard of, they're having a great yeah. college experience. And these parents who are driven by fear mm. over brand names that's ruining their kids' lives. And they need to, they need yes. to watch some more of the NCAA tournament and see, <laughs> see how, what the real college experience is about. Yeah, Michael, I mean, it, it seems to me in those uh, admission rate numbers that you are giving, there's a lot of opportunity. There's this yeah. line, maybe it's a myth out there, that college has gotten so impossible to get into. Well, th those numbers suggest maybe not exactly. And what I hear from a lot of admissions people is because of the common application, colleges more than ever aren't sure which kids are actually going to come yeah, just because right. they've applied. So if you're, if you're a student who is just looking for a good value education, do you maybe have a better opportunity in showing a school that you're really interested in actually getting in there and, I don't know, maybe getting some aid? I think so. And, you, and you know, the point that you make, 
the the number of applications that go to colleges now because you know 20 years ago when you were filling out a paper application and applying to one or two schools now you can use the common app you can use uh, web-based application services and apply to 15 or 20 so application numbers at some of these selective schools have grown from 20 or 30,000 to 60 or 70,000 but ironically in some cases the profile of the students that get in hasn't changed that much it's just the acceptance rates have declined so much because students are applying to so many different schools so I think I would encourage families to look more at the concept of fit and the right institution and, and look what the graduates are doing choose colleges and you know I can't make people do this but don't apply to so many places uh, target your efforts so that we don't you know have these stories of a student each year that gets into every one of the ivies I know it's a good story but that student is only going to go to one of those schools and then it creates a uh, you know, a, a, a loss at the others and somebody doesn't get selected. So there needs to be some more research in advance and kind of take a breath. Uh, and I also agree with looking at a wide range of good institutions out there outside of the highly selective. Adam, you, you've run a lot of numbers, so I wonder from you, have you looked at uh, cost-effective strategies specifically? I, I hear about going to a community college for a couple of years and then transferring as one way. It's, it seems to me like that perhaps ends up sacrificing the social aspect of college, which also has a lot of value if you're splitting your time that way. But uh, have you looked at that? And if so, what have you found? Well, um, you know, more uh, than 40% uh, yeah. of students who earn yeah. their first bachelor's degree do so at the second school that they attend. And many of right. them started at community colleges. And I would say that, you know, they are successful exactly. uh, in society. And, that, and, and, you know, it's part of the master plan for the state of California. That's a good pathway to it, get it, into it's Berkeley. It's a good pathway in. And again, that's, that's another front door to get into uh, to better colleges or more prestigious uh, colleges. I haven't run the, the numbers on, on that scenario specifically, but, uh, you know, just looking at this case, you know, the, the uh, public institutions versus Ivy League, there's a, there's a better return on your money there. Again, a little bit of a black box model. But even in the cases where some of these celebrities paid up and some didn't, I think there was the case of one that only paid $15,000 versus another actress that paid a total of $500,000. <laughs> Well, obviously, in the first case, uh, the, the costs weren't increased, so, uh, so you have a better rate of return there uh, um, uh, if the, the kid does complete the education. I, I don't know if that's the case now, uh, but certainly uh, you would assume that if the, their uh, you know, uh, daughters or sons had gone to a public institution, there would have been no bribery involved. They could have easily have gotten in, you know, and therefore um, uh, there's no lost uh, opportunity cost here. But also back to this idea, going back to this idea of meritocracy, yeah, sure, let people get on based on their skills and abilities or SAT scores or ACT scores and, and also, you know, what they've done in the past if they've been uh, involved in other organizations. Uh, let that meritocracy flow through uh, and, and, and base it upon that. But some of that stuff is hard to measure. I mean, these schools have water polo teams in some cases. I, I can't imagine what the, what the point of a water polo team is, <laughs> practically speaking, except to maybe offer scholarships to kids who play water polo and they're not playing water polo in the hood. Uh, Robert Frank, um, what's, your, what's your perspective on the, the value question and how that plays, especially now in this era of, we talk about it as inequality, but economic stratification? I'm just getting over. They don't play water polo in the hood line. Uh, but but look, that I, is a T-shirt right there. I think I, I think um, look, uh, the schools have been lazy, and I think if schools really want to be a stairway to opportunity rather than a monument to a plutocracy, they have to become more active in seeking people of more diverse economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, not just look at it along pure racial lines. And by that I mean you know schools have basically said, look, we're going to open ourselves up to foreign students, to out-of-state students in the case of public, uh, public universities in the states. And we'll take a lot of full-paying people. We'll take all the donations. Last year, the wealthy gave $47 billion to universities and colleges. The top one, Harvard. Do they need more money? No. Stanford's number two, Columbia number three. Do any of them, any of those endowments need more money? No. What they should be doing is, is taking that money and, and creating programs where they go out into communities and find kids who at an early age might be able to go, they might be good fits for that university, but maybe need a little help, a little guidance, and as well as using more of that money to, to help those who need financial aid right. and not just build more buildings 
and create more programs that, that just truly cement the place of today's plutocracy. They do like to build the buildings. C.J. Farley, uh, I've, I've also read that a lot of these colleges are having cultural challenges, really integrating students from different socioeconomic backgrounds effectively into the culture. And to me, that speaks to perhaps a ham-fisted approach to recruiting and diversity, where they're looking to make numbers but not really thinking deeply about how the community is going to work once the students are on campus. Uh, have you seen that? And I know your book around Harvard Square, once again, coming out April 1st, touches on uh, a lot of these kinds of cultural issues. What, what can be done differently? Yeah, well, one thing I do talk about in my book is the fact that when you do land at one of these elite colleges, they have dinner um, clubs, they have secret societies, they have networks, they have professors that only meet with certain people. There are all these structures in place that if you're coming from an outsider perspective, if you're coming from a place that's a little bit outside of the mainstream of who they usually accept, you might not have access to those networks. Because and you don't want access? Because yeah, you don't well, know about it? Partly because maybe you don't want to. Sometimes it's because you don't know about it. Sometimes you don't know how cool it is and how much it can change the course of your life. You know, me just joining the Harvard Lampoon, which was uh, uh, the humor magazine on campus, I did it because I thought it would be a lot of fun, but it opened up a lot of networking possibilities. When I first started to write a book, John Updike, who was alive at the time, actually wrote me a letter giving some encouragement, saying that, you know, don't worry, the book doesn't do well because some smart people write very bad books. And I thought, <laughs> I didn't quite know what he meant by that, but I thought it was good advice. And those are kind of possibilities that going to a school like that opens up to you, but it's sort of hard to convince people that you should do that. I remember speaking in front of the Harvard freshman black table, trying to convince more people to join the Harvard Lampoon, that this should be a good thing for them. And I sort of got some blank stares, like, why would we want to join the Harvard Lampoon? That's not for black people. So, so that can be a problem. We're trying to let people know that, hey, it's fun, it's cool, but it's also opening up all these network possibilities. In the end, your Harvard diploma isn't just about you know, the classes you, you took. It, it's not just about the money you can earn. It's also about the people you meet and the possibilities you open up. And networking and socializing is a huge part of it. Uh, indeed, indeed. Michael, I, I want to give you uh, a chance to close us out here. Uh, if there's one counter-narrative, that you would introduce for families that are looking at this process. Uh, it's financially daunting. It's daunting from the perspective of trying to find value and get the right kind of uh, education. Uh, they're being told your test scores have to be sky high. You need to be uh, involved in, in five million different extracurriculars. What would you tell people to focus on? Uh, again, I would focus on the fit of the institution. And you know, you know, while this, this discussion about the selective uh, institutions is important, around the country we're seeing declining high school graduation numbers, which are leading to lower enrollments at lots of colleges and universities. This is a good opportunity uh, to seek to enroll in many fine institutions that have been struggling with some of their enrollments. Uh, I would also note that... Uh, you know, you know, right now we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on this problem when one of the bigger issues going into this is the fact that low-income students aren't going to college and graduating even if they're high achievers. And yet wealthy people who don't have strong academic performance are much more likely uh, to go to college. So I would just encourage people uh, to, 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 to kind of look at the data and look at the statistics and don't get completely caught up and the sensationalism of this, despite how crazy it is. It is indeed and sensational. One thing, if I, if, if I could add real quick, too, okay. is um, the underlying incentives of this. You know, how does something like this start and, and, and take off? Um, you know, obviously, people were getting away from it. If you own a store and your employees are taking a you know, $5 bill, maybe they ramp up to a $20 bill eventually. And I'm guessing as this story evolves, we'll see that uh, maybe it started off slowly and, and got bigger and bigger. Um, uh, certainly there was no disincentive there uh, at the beginning for them to, uh, to stop doing this. And uh, the more and more they got away with it, the more they, they could find out that this could happen. But um, also back to just kind of the merits of it, you know, um, you take something like a Southeastern Trail Runner podcast that encourages people to go run 50 miles out in the woods. So have people earn their keep, you know, have people work hard. And I think that's what they should be teaching here instead of, uh, you know, bribing their kids way into school. I think we can all agree with that. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so much for all sharing your perspective. Up next on the podcast, Frank Calderoni is the CEO 
of Anaplan. Before that, he was the CFO of Red Hat, um, of Cisco, and of SanDisk, among others. That's not all. He shares his perspective on getting ahead after you've chosen a college and gotten out. Uh, this, once again, has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. Frank Calderoni, thanks for sitting down for Fort Knox. I want to talk first about Anaplan. You're the CEO. Yes. And this is about helping customers prepare for different scenarios, what might happen, modeling. Um, How did you become aware of the company? So, you know, I, I think it all starts back when, uh, if you look back at my background, I've been in CFO and kind of COO roles for a number of years. And planning has been everything that I've been doing on the financial side, but also on the business side. And I realized over the years some of the challenges associated with uh, planning. Uh, planning tends to be, and especially large companies, like I was the CFO of Cisco, it tends to be very siloed uh, and mostly backward looking and it gets to be very people intensive, people being in spreadsheets and things like that. And I heard about Anaplan a couple years before I joined, and I was really intrigued by the technology because I felt that it was a great technology, but it was also something that was fundamentally could change how planning is being perceived in organizations. Uh, first, I would say it allows you to uh, think of planning more in a future perspective than a historic perspective where you can be much more predictive and, and thinking about your business. Secondly, it, it allows you to uh, look at planning holistically across the enterprise. Uh, so, it's not just so it's not just financial planning. Planning occurs in sales organizations, in right. how, they do, how they do their territories, right, plan right. out territories, how they plan their compensation, set their goals, do their forecasting, uh, in supply chain organizations and how they think about their demand and then matching their demand with their supply and the whole uh, process between supply and demand. And planning comes into that, right? And, and the ability to connect those plans, like from supply chain into sales into finance, is probably a major void that I saw over the number of years that I've been doing planning. Because that's what I mean by silos, right? Right, right? Supply chain, they do their own planning. Same thing in sales, same thing in finance. And, and the connection of that is, is really a, a big void. And so when I saw an Anaplan, when you think about SaaS and, and a platform that allows people to really kind of get into one platform with a common set of data that is connected end to end, it opens up so many different possibilities to really improve your decision making. You've been CFO, and I'm just going to name a few. At SanDisk, which is known for flash, uh, memory. flash memory, memory chips. At Red Hat, kind of an open source uh, Software, software yeah. uh, company providing services to, um, and uh, let's see, Cisco. Oh yeah, yeah, that little one, the networking <laughs> giant, right? Uh, I mean, um, twelve years at Cisco, so it was a, it was a good run. Yeah, it's unusual. I don't run across a lot of chief financial officers who have worked at that many different kind of high impact companies in their category. Was that a plan that you had? Or, uh... Well, I'd like to think now it was a perfect plan that I was able to just kind of execute. But as you know, as you go through life, um, you, you know, you like to think about plans, but it changes over a period of time. You know, I, I can just go back. I mean, I, I spent 21 years at IBM prior mm -hmm. to SanDisk, uh, which was a fantastic opportunity. I was there in the 80s and the 90s when IBM was growing at rapid rates. and. It was a fantastic opportunity for me to really in learn. In finance? In finance. Okay. But, you know, what I loved about IBM is that the roles that I had were finance, but they were very business oriented. And so I, w I got a chance to work in some of the software divisions, the storage division, at the time the PC division. So it gave me a good breadth of experience across multiple different uh, parts of technology um, mm -hmm. over those many years. And then when the opportunity for Sandus came up, which was my first CFO role when I moved to California, it was also an opportunity to try a different uh, role. Um, mm -hmm. At the time, SanDisk was um, three or four hundred million. That must so, have been way different too, because yeah, it was big. founder run, right? Ellie Harari, yes, Ellie. Um, yep. who, who I talked to uh, over the years. I mean, IBM is sort of this huge, it's big blue. Right. SanDisk right. was, a, was, a, it was a, big change. a scrappy a little big. company. And, and you can imagine, I remember a lot of the interviews I went on, it was like, oh, you worked 21 years at IBM, big, big company, how can you scale down and work in a, a smaller company, and especially one in Silicon Valley that's fast moving and things like that. 
so I would say, you know, the transition at first was, you know, a major difference and, and a little difficult, but working with someone like Ellie, you know, a founder, a creative, you know, kind of genius in that whole space, I learned a lot uh, different things than I'd learned at IBM, and so kind of putting that all together was, was great. And the time at SanDisk, we were, uh, you know, Ellie was taking some big, bold steps on his own. I mean, he was moving into fab, where they were fabulous before, so getting into an investment and, and kind of designing, you know, working on with chips. There was a joint venture we did with Toshiba. So it was great for me in a new CFO role to kind of partner with him and others on the team to really make major investments. We made, at the time, a billion dollar investment, and then we made a second billion dollar investment, which really paid off tremendously for SanDisk uh, many years later. Yeah, so what got you into the mode where you were interested in finance, interested in management? What were you into as a kid? Were you just... As a kid? Yeah. Um, you know, it's quite interesting, because it's sort of a totally different. So when I was a kid, the first thing that comes to mind is I was into filmmaking. Really? I was, uh, you know, I don't know if you, I think they still have it now, but they had these teenage movie awards uh, kind of thing where you used to, you know, whether yourself or with a group, you used to make these creative films. Uh -huh. And so I entered a contest, which was in the United States, and I won. What year? Oh, gosh. I, I, I don't remember. Roughly. Uh, it had to have been in the early 70s, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Some, uh, don't, don't quote me on specifically <laughs> as I think back. But it was... Um, so I, I was on the creative side, I really liked that, and I liked the experimentation. And so I always wanted to go, I, I thought about a career in, in filmmaking. And what then was everyone the movie about? Um, I did a couple of movies. So the movie was a documentary about America. And it was just kind of on the, at the time, of course, down in the 70s, there was a lot of uh, urbanization and growth, mm -hmm. and how cities were kind of developing. So it was on that, um, which was interesting for me to kind of just go off and do different shots and then kind of edit it together. Um, so it, it, was, it was a different, I was thinking about that. But then I got all this advice from so many people like, can you really have a career in filmmaking? And the challenge in this. And so, so I went down, I went the safe route, I thought, <laughs> which was, okay, let's go into the finance uh, world. And I went to Fordham University here in the city. Uh -huh. And I went into the College Business Administration. And so I got interested in finance and accounting and all that. And so that kind of started my whole career in the financial side. And then I ended up getting this internship with IBM. Um, and I worked uh, two summers with IBM, which got me into the whole corporate world, which at the time, is, again, was really exciting. And they offered me a full-time job, and that's, you know, that was my first 21 years. I'm not trying to spark a midlife crisis or anything, but uh, do you still tap into that creative side yeah. in the things? You know, you know, I mean, it seems like if that's, if that's a part of you early on, you got to feed so, that so, somehow. So, you know, I have to say, so th I think I can tie this back into the culture at Anaplan. Okay. So, yeah, we do. I don't do it myself, but we do some fun things in Anaplan. Um, say, for instance, we just did, we just had our kickoff a few weeks ago for the new fiscal year. And we did a video um, on running. And the theme of the, of the kickoff was lead, uh, lead the way. Mm -hmm as far as just kind of the transformation that we're driving in the industry and so forth. And so we did a film um, on just making a little bit of fun about our competitive landscape and what it takes to really win a race and how the team kind of helps support you on that. So last year we did, and I really probably shouldn't say this outside of Anaplan, but we did a music video <laughs> as a way to kick off last year. So Don't tell so, me you sing too. Uh, I wouldn't say I sing, no. No. All right. But is there video but to prove it one way or the other? There is a video that's only within Anaplan. So don't, don't, John, don't try to get a copy of it because it's only within Anaplan. So, so yeah, so I, I think about these creative juices that I had back then and I try to leverage it within Anaplan and, and the team really likes it. I mean, they, they gravitate to it. Um, where did you start to figure out that management was part of what you either wanted to do or needed to do um, to get to the the next level where you saw it yourself? Was that part of it all along, or were you mostly at first focused on, well, let me just do my part over here? So it, it goes back to IBM. Um, I, I don't remember how many years in. I think I was, it was early in my career, which I felt was fortunate for me. I think it was like four years in my career at IBM, where they gave me the opportunity to take a management role. And I remember, and this is what I loved about IBM, they had a very strong management way about about uh, IBM, right? As far as just all the legacy and things like that. And so I remember the first time I made manager, uh, we had a two-week course that we had to go through as the orientation as being a new manager. 
And I learned so much during that. Um, it was very, you know, instructor-led and so forth with, with other peers. And I remember they used to get, they gave you the certificate, and I, st I still have that. Even though my wife tells me I'm a collector sometimes of <laughs> junk, I still have that certificate the first time I made manager. And, um, you know, I really liked it. I liked the, um, the ability, and IBM kind of helped me develop as a manager, but I like the opportunity of, of really leading teams. And I've been a manager ever since in IBM and various other companies that I've been part of. And what, what really interests me is, you know, I learned a lot from some of my previous managers, and I want to, you know, also share some of the learnings I had with people that work around me or for me. And just having individuals just get enthusiastic about the goals and what success looks like was important, and, and I've enjoyed it. It seems to me like knowing the future or having a sense of what different future scenarios are isn't enough. Um, and I'm thinking about this in the context of AI and data and everybody wants to know what's coming, right? Right. Isn't part of it then the soft skills around knowing how to prepare either your team or the customer or whomever, prepare them for those scenarios? Because even if you're right about mm -hmm. what's going to happen or what might happen, if you don't have that other set of skills, it might not do you that much good. Correct, correct. You know, I, I, it's true, everybody talks about AI and, and ML, and it's, it's, it's great that that technology is really advancing, um, and we're even doing things within Anaplan around that, but it, it, it's, 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 it's going to help individuals. You know, I look at it this way, it helps you to make better decisions, it's just more information, but, if, but you can get overwhelmed with the information if you really don't have some of the business experience that you need, if you don't have the right connections with both inside and outside your, your company and, and what's really happening. So I think it complements and it adds to the whole process. But I, I, I tie back to decision making. If I look at the number of years that I've been a leader, it's really having great information that allowed me to be more effective. And, and even when I made a decision that may have been not the right one, learning pretty quickly why it wasn't the right one and how to maybe course correct is, is as important. So right. what, is, what are some of the new skills that leaders and workers but have to have in this environment where we've got not only a lot of data, we've got a lot of software that's helping to paint scenarios with that data. Um, it, it seems like what's required of the humans in that environment has shifted a bit. Yeah, I, I, well first of all, I think, I think, and I've always been a proponent of this for so many years as I led teams, it's really, I think to get people, you know, I, I've managed large organizations and, and even myself, there's a tendency when you're doing your job to get very narrow and get so focused on information or data. And I think, um, and sometimes it's just even preparing the data and reconciling the data. And when that's all can be done for you, and that's what a lot of the software and the technology and especially predictive allows you to do, it, it makes you be able to step back and really use your brain uh, and, and really think about what is it really showing you and how does it relate to the business and how is it going to advance what you're trying to do and make you more successful. So I would say over those years, it's really to, to, to allow you more time to think and process and, and understand that everything has so many different elements of, of that thinking process and having that ability to do that is, is very advantageous, right? And so I encourage teams to really kind of get out of the data sometimes, use it, but really kind of look at the real life situation and what you really try. And I, I always say like, what, what does success look like? And if you know what success looks like and what you're trying to accomplish, that's really your goal. Mm -hmm. You're better likely to be able to figure out how best to get there. Now that you're a CEO, you think it's easier or harder for a CFO to work with you? <laughs> that's something you have to ask Dave. Oh no, I said, do you think? So, um, <laughs> you know, actually I, I, I should say this. Um, so when I joined, you know, one of the things is I had to get a CFO, so hiring a CFO, and I heard from some of the recruiters, they said, you know, Frank, people don't want to come work for you as a CFO because they feel, one, you have all this experience, and secondly, you're going to be a micromanager and try to do their job. And I said, and I, and I think Dave can attest to this, you know, having, I've loved my CFO roles. I mean, it's, it's, I've had some really great roles, and I love being a CFO but I even more so appreciate being a CEO. And one of the things I don't want to do in this role is be a CFO. And so it's one of those things that I can just, getting the right person, and I, and I do feel like we do with, uh, with Dave Morton, I let him do what he needs to do, and I work with all the other things that uh, could be of need or interest from an Anaplan perspective. Uh, do you have to specifically hold yourself back 
from a few times, maybe a few times, maybe a week or just no, 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 <laughs> no. Just you know, we just went through. You know, we started the fiscal year, so we went through the planning process, yeah. and I let Dave and the team kind of work, run through that. And you know, at times I had a little bit of advice and counsel, but not really. You're on the board of Adobe. Yes. They did a CFO transition not With too John long Murphy ago. And Mark Garrett. What's it like from the board perspective? I'm not asking you specifically about uh, Adobe necessarily, because I know there are issues around what you can share, but hiring a CFO and figuring out things like cultural fit. Because you've, you've been a CFO in a number of different organizations. Sure. You know how the demands are different if you're selling you know, physical chips versus software yes. versus, you know, et cetera. So how is that process different? What's it like to be on that end? So a, a couple things I'd say. So I, I'm, I'm head of the audit committee at Adobe, so it was one of the you know, key roles that I had um, working with Shantanu uh, to figure out as we were looking at a transition for the CFO. So the first thing, we want to make sure that you've got the right skill uh, from a technical perspective. And as you said, the second thing is really the right kind of a fit within the organization because the CFO to be successful is someone that, yes, does all the what's required from an accounting and from a planning standpoint, but you want someone that can really kind of work with the executive team and really help Shantanu and that team continue the success that the company's had. And so it was fortunate in the situation with Adobe where John Murphy was hired, um, I, don't, I think it was like a year and a half before the transition as the corporate controller. So Mark Garrett, um, you know, and, and, and also the company as well as the board participated in that search knowing that, okay, looking for talent in the future is important. So we, we went through that with John Murphy, as well as some of the other folks within the organization, to really kind of think through that, the technical capability as well as the cultural fit. And it was great about John Murphy that he had a chance, you know, the year and a half to really kind of show that he clearly, not only technically, but was a right cultural fit. So when it came time for the CFO role, we looked at external candidates as well as internal candidates. And I think both the, the company and the board, we all felt that John was the, the, the best candidate for the role. So um, it, it's always good when you have the chance to kind of work with someone uh, firsthand, but John had a, you know, a previous um, years of experience with other companies as well. Uh, now I want to get a little abstract sure. about planning. We've been talking about being a CFO, planning for a company. Do the same principles apply when you're planning for life? Like when, when you're thinking about where you see yourself, your family goals over the next five, 10 years, to what degree do you map that stuff out? And to what degree do you just say, you know what, I'm not at work. We're... So that's, it's a difficult thing. So, you know, as you ask that question, I go back to my kids mm -hmm. right now. So I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old. Oh, wow. And uh, my- I've got an eight year old and a 10 year old. <laughs> so, so. You, so you know, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the 15 year old is at a, you know, a critical uh, stage, Jessica. She, uh, she's a sophomore in high school and so, High school in itself, having you know, we've all been there, but um, it's a it's a good transition that you go through in life, and and also thinking about college, and you know, I, I just had a conversation with her last week, and I wanted to, you know, it's it's also that chance where children at that age rebel a little bit, and I think that parents don't know anything, right? Yeah, right? And and of course, I've been around for a while, but she doesn't think that was any relevant to <laughs> anything that she's trying to do. So I tried to give her some words of wisdom about, can I share, and she was not into it. She wants to learn on her own and so forth. So I would like to plan, help her plan as she thinks about the next couple of years and where she goes to college. Uh, so I'm trying to offer that advice, but at the same time not be overbearing. So it's a little like having it's, a CFO. It's like, like a CFO. So I got to <laughs> learn about that, how to step back and give her her space and let her learn on her own, but at the same time help guide her the best I can. So you can't do it like you would do it no. in an organization. And my wife tells me all the time, she's, you know, she tells me on a regular basis, this is not Anna plan. <laughs> <laughs> we're, you know, we're a family and so, so it's, 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 it's fun, you know. Sometimes you do take your work back home, but then you, it, it's good. My wife checks me because she's, she's had a very successful career as well and she knows uh, both sides, but she knows to kind of check me at times and say, okay, you're back being a dad or being a husband and and there's a different mode that you have to be in to help the people around you be successful. Yes, yes, right. Um, does that relate at all to different functions in an organization? Because though Anaplan, I'm sure, is good for many, many things, it's not good for everything when it comes to planning out um, maybe how to help a coworker or an employee deal with um, 
uh, a training challenge that they have or know how to manage the organization around uh, a personal issue that somebody's having. Anaplan itself, the technology, we'd love to say it does everything, but no. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, first, first, we, we leverage the technology across the company and we're really learning and the, and the individuals in the company are learning a lot about the capability of the platform. But separate from that, you want to, similar to what I said before, you want to make sure there's other things on the personal side that, that complement that. So, you know, it goes back to even my experience at IBM or, or Cisco or SanDisk is, uh, and some of the, even though we're an early company, uh, making sure that we spend time developing people um, as managers, as leaders, but even as professionals. Um, you know, the average age in our company is much different than what I was at at Cisco, right? Because it's an early company versus a, a more mature company. Generations come into play. And we want to make sure that we're not, you know, we, we're, we're very diverse and open to different ideas and processes, but allowing people to um, bring what they can to the table and then learn from each other is, is really important. So our culture and our values play a very important uh, aspect of our success. Uh, even going back to what I said before about our kickoff, you know, bringing a lot of the culture into how we went through that week of training people, developing them, understand what the goals are, what does success look like, how do they fit into it, how do they work together as a team to complement each other. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer of no politics. Um, you know, take That's that out hard. of work. It is hard. But taking that out of the workplace, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in what we call reality-based leadership, which is drama out of the workplace. Um, I've, I was fortunate to learn that many years ago uh, through a consultant uh, that was very influential to me hmm. and to the organization Cisco, which I then carried into Red Hat and also now to Anaplan. Whereas, you know, if you, if you think about the human element, and, and it's, it's this whole thing about ego, and, and keeping your ego in check. When the ego is not in check is when bad things happen in an organization and drama occurs and you become less productive. When you can keep your ego in check and know that this is, this is a business relationship uh, or business, it's not nothing personal uh -huh. um, and we're trying to work through things, you get people to more actively debate things and come to good conclusions rather than let emotion and ego get into the way. So, Learning all of, I, I learned that, I continue to keep learning that, I don't know that I'm not the best all of the time, but having that uh, within Anaplan helps a lot. It helps the human side and then we got the technology side, so it brings it together to make a, a good solution. I think that's a great place to put a button on that one. Frank, thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Good seeing you again. I'm John Fort from CNBC and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.